Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hits. I'm Matt Lewis, and anyone familiar with my social media or my writing will know that Ludlow is a fabulous town near the Welsh borders and is a place that I absolutely love. It's steeped in medieval history with links to some of the people that I write about the most, the House of York, Richard, Duke of York, Edward IV, Richard III. The town has a beautiful castle and church and is a great place to stroll around on market days. So this episode is something of an indulgence for me for which I hope you'll forgive me. I'm delighted to be joined by Leon Bracelin, who is the resident archaeologist at Ludlow Castle, to talk about some of his work and some of his finds there. Thank you for joining us, Leon. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. A real pleasure to be on the programme. Well, I'm 100% up for this. So can you tell us a little bit about the earliest history that we know of about Ludlow? When does Ludlow begin to emerge as a, an important town? Now, the interesting thing about Ludlow is that it's really steeped in a lot of history. And I suppose the earliest reference to it, because it wasn't in the Doomsday Book, we tend to go on the Doomsday Book, premise the good old Normans. You can imagine their scribes going around. They must have had a problem when they got to Wales. Of course, Ludlow's on the border of Wales here because of the pronunciation. So it wasn't in the Doomsday Book. It didn't exist at that point and of course the doomsday book was around sort of 1066 around that period but we do know from the archaeology and what's been discovered over the past century with various bits that's gone on that there was probably three farmsteads originally around Ludlow pre-conquest and that would have been Dinham, down Jalford uh, and also down Corve Street as well. Corve Street in particular is interesting because in that 14th century, you have that emergence of the Carmelite Friary. And that was a big monastic building, bigger than the current St. Lawrence's Church. And if anyone knows Ludlow, it's a wonderful, as you approach Ludlow, you, you see the church for miles. It's like a beacon, a honing beacon. Kind of nicknamed the Cathedral of the Marches, isn't it? Such a big parish church for a town, really. I mean, it really, I mean, I'm, I, I'm quite honoured because I got married there and it's beautiful and it's a very key location actually where it is. So the earliest sort of reference there to Ludlow, you've got the farmsteads. We know that there was a very strong probability of a settlement, particularly in Dinham, which is around the, the sort of where the castle is located. You've got this wonderful river that snakes round. Just north of the town, you've got a hive of archaeological activity that's been looked at over the years. 
you've got prehistoric landscape, Mesolithic and Neolithic as well. And it also links to the east side, Clee Hill. So it's had this wonderful emergence through the ages. But from that medieval period, yeah, on that doomsday book, it wasn't in existence. I think it was Stanton Lacey, the fortified manor house towards Graven Arms. The de Laces actually owned it, the Normans. So when the Normans got here, they were given their lands to their military, if you like, boat. And then you had the emergence of all of the Mott and Baileys, you know, and particularly where we lo- we're, we're located geographically, we are on the borders of Wales. And that whole castle, which is really linked, it was built 1086, the Normans built it, and you've got the castles up the marches, which is the line dividing England from Wales, really to keep the Welsh out because they were such troublesome folk. I mean, Welsh, you know what Welsh means, don't you? It's an Anglo-Saxon term. It means other people not like us to be foreign. <laughs> they were feared. And I quite often say the Welsh marches for the Normans when they arrive and things like that. It's a lot like the American Wild West. So it's a big frontier. Yeah, so the lords that go out to the, the Welsh marches, they have a degree of independence from the crown that maybe others don't enjoy, but they tended to be a really tough breed. You know, they, they knew how to deal with the Welsh, they knew how to deal with the Normans, and they kind of operate in that weird space in between, which is why you get that row of fortresses up there, don't you? I mean, Ludlow Castle is a big old fortress of a castle made to defend the Welsh borders. It's fabulous. It is. And it's a great demonstration. And I often say when people come in, the visitors come into the castle over the summer months, I say, you know, look, look at this. Because people, I think, sometimes wrongly assume that Ludlow Castle is all about a lordship. Well, that came later. It was a military building and they were making their mark on the landscape. Uh, in the hinterlands as well. And they were saying, we're here to dominate, we're here to rule you, and you are subservient. When you walk around that castle, every aspect of it, it just, you look at it and you think, people made this with their, you know, they created this monument with their hands. It's astonishing, isn't it? You can see for absolutely miles around, can't you? If you go to the top of the keep or anything like that, you can see literally for miles into Wales. Yes, and that's a really good point because I often say to people, I say, go to the top, especially of the keep, and then do a 360-degree turn and you will see aspects on the landscape, on the hinterlands, and, you know, it's all part of this town. As far as you can see, all links. Trade was going on, movement was happening, life was living, and I suppose in the medieval period, it was much like really is today. People had their own concerns, you know, um, life goes on. We're living through a very unusual time at the moment. And last year when I was able to excavate, it just struck me as I was going through the levels on some of the digs I was doing in the key location of the town. When you get in the later period, that Victoria, the cholera, the TB, then you go down into the medieval and you're looking at that period where they were dealing with the Black Plague, which kept coming back, and the, the Black Death. And, and people were still like us, living and getting on with it. Yeah, it really hits home. Yeah, I guess probably right now it, it feels like such a strong parallel to the, the evidence that you're literally digging out of the ground for what happened 700 years ago. So what kind of thing does the archaeology around Ludlow tell us about 
about the town. So what kind of trades were prevalent there? What kind of evidence do we see of people's daily lives around Ludlow? A good point to this is a lot of people go, well, archaeology, you know, what's this about? And people often refer to Time Team and, and things like that, which done a wonderful embodiment of work. It brought it into people's living rooms and raised awareness. And I often say to my students, you know, archaeology is about finding things out as opposed to finding things. We're like detectives. They're clues. They're clues to what people were doing in the past, in the ancient past. And the finds here are varied from clay pipes, post-medieval. And that was because of the castle. And it demonstrates the affluence of wealth. Clay pipes, the early clay pipes are very small bowl heads. The later ones are a bit bigger with the foots on the end as well. It's just showing it's becoming cheaper, you know. But at the beginning, it was exclusive. Then you can go through, you know, musket balls, find musket balls, another little later end of the medieval. But for me in particular as an archaeologist, is the medieval pottery. I really trying to get a foothold in understanding the typologies we have here in the medieval period, particularly between the 10th and the 14th century. I'm trying to understand the fabrics. And what I mean by that is that looking at how these vessels were made, looking at the inclusions, working out how far they came. The general rule of thumb in the medieval period is in pottery, it was a poor man's trade, really. And you can imagine the people making the pots and then going on horse and cart to market. And the general rule of thumb is you see a change every 20 to 25 miles because they break, you see, and things like this. But vessels, pottery is very, very important because we have cups, we have tin cans, we have plastic, we have all kinds of stuff to contain things, but they didn't. And pottery and vessels and jugs and all these kind of things, for me as a find, really shows us an insight into medieval life here. Other things, unusual things come up. A seal matrix is probably one of the most interesting things I've heard from the 14th century. <laughs> with a VW, uh, no, with a, it looked like a VW, you know, again, with parallels into today, you know, into modern life, really. It looks like a Virgin Mary stamp mark. Tiny little thing is, I think we had one medieval crossbow bowl that we found. That was interesting. It was 14th century. And an abundance of organic material. Oyster shells. Bones. There's bones everywhere. Everything I do in town, there's bones. An abundance of bones. Because we talk about organic today, but these guys didn't know nothing but organic, you know. <laughs> I think also a lot of people get confused with the shiny stuff in archaeology. They go, oh, you found any gold? No, I haven't. Not that I tell them anyway. But some of the interesting finds, broad date range, and it's really interesting. But pottery for me is the key, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned a crossbow bolt being found there. Is there anything that you found, particularly in the castle I'm thinking of, that can tell us about what's going on at the castle? So it's a border frontier, it's a militarily operative building, and over the medieval period, I guess it becomes refined into much more of a comfortable palatial place as the Mortimers become more wealthy and the House of York gets control of it, and, it, and then it goes into crown hands during the Wars of the Roses. Can you see that kind of progression and change of use in the archaeology? Well, it's a really interesting point. I mean, the castle is a protected monument. It's a scheduled monument. So there's 
very little in the way of what I would say investigative archaeology, as in opening up trenches that go on there. But the work that does go on there when we do open it up for various things. So, for example, the festivals that we have, we have to monitor and make sure that they don't do any damage to any archaeology with the tent pegs, you know, because they go quite deep. But invariably, the other interesting facet is that Castle is very high status. And in reflection to the town, it's a bit of an anomaly because you've got the average working everyday people and the division between those in the castle was extremely sort of, the wealth was extremely sparse. And so the finds that have come out, to me, again, some of the pottery that we have found in some of the trenches that we've done in our investigative work have possibly been as early as date between 1080 and 1250. And that ties in with other sherds that I found across the other parts of the town as well. And of course, over the years, there's stuff that's been catalogued, you know, the finer stuff has been catalogued and is in the museums. One thing that comes to mind, there was a lovely ornate 13th century ivory figure. Uh, I think it was a bishop and that was found in Mortimer's Tower. So there are some interesting things. And in fact, there's a whole embodiment of work of really refreshing the finds that have come out over the last century, because a lot of that hasn't been revisited and a lot of things that are stored away in dusty boxes sometimes. Yeah, do you see a noticeable difference in the pottery that comes out of the castle compared to what comes out of the town? So is it higher status? Does it seem to come from further away maybe? Or are they using pottery that has been you know, made in Ludlow? Yeah, well, this is what I'm trying to determine. And there's a whole gaping hole of knowledge we don't know. Because Ludlow, you see, it's a very well-documented medieval town. It's one of the best medieval-documented towns in the country. So over 75 to 80 years, a tremendous amount of research has been done, documentary evidence, by the historical society. And they've done a tremendous amount of work. But they are different to us archaeologists. We deal with the physical remains. And that's why the police use forensic archaeology because it's conclusive. But we need to synthesize and work together. And the pottery linking in with your question that we found in the castle, a lot of it is very well made. But it, particularly in the post-medieval Tudor period, you're starting to get these wonderful different treatments of glazing that you don't see anywhere else in the town. So there is a difference. But the early stuff between the pottery between 1080 and 1250 is very similar. Some of it is Mulvernian ware, so it's come all the way from the Malvern Hills, and it's got this beautiful crushed mica in it. So when you look at it in the sun, you can see it sparkling. Some of these shirts have sooting on them still when they come out of the ground. So it's something that we don't understand, but it's something that the embodiment of work that I'm doing especially with a test project that I'm doing in the historic core of the town, is collecting that data so we can analyse it and further our understanding of it more than what we currently know. Because archaeologically, not a lot has been done in Ludlow in the past, only by association. House extensions, watching briefs that I do, especially around the town wall and ditch, you know, that's part of a scheduled monument as well. So it's heavily protected. It sounds like it's fair to say that the, the gulf between the town and the castle seems like it got wider 
as the medieval period went on. So they started off quite close together. By the time we get to the Tudor period, when I guess Ludlow is becoming a centre of government for Wales, really, it's becoming much more apart from the town and the townspeople. You're correct. Um, in fact, up in the castle square, where, again, once the castle was built and about 100 years afterwards, the emergence of the town market there. But some of those key buildings, like the Castle Lodge, Queen Elizabeth's Keeper of Requests lived there. You know, he had a war chest and he had an incredible amount of wealth. And then a quality square, if you go around the back and look towards the entrance above, you'll see these wonderful thin Tudor bricks. And they were terrible standard. A lot of them were imported from Italy and they were really expensive because, of course, old medieval buildings were mainly stone rubble and wood. And the emergence of bricks then later in that post-medieval period, about 1530s, I think it was, was showing how much wealth people had. I often wonder as well, maybe you can help me out with this one. Ludlow, when you walk through it, it feels like a really old historic town. So how different might Ludlow have looked in, say, the 14th, 15th century to what it looks like now? Because a lot of the shops, I think, are probably the same buildings. You know, it used to be a shop in the front and people would live or work, have a workshop out the back. And a lot of that narrow street, you know, narrow buildings are still there. So can we still feel like Ludlow is fairly similar to what people walked around 600 years ago? In the medieval period, it was grim. Unless you were in that top fraction, yeah, who had wealth, status, royalty even, life was just not worth. And in answer to the question, I'm thinking of the names of the streets. Fish Street, Frog Lane, that's now St. Julian's Lane. All these medieval references, you know, especially Frog Lane down by the wheat sheaf there. The wheat sheaf there is built in the town ditch. And a subterranean survey I did many moons ago, I was looking underneath the town trying to find entrances to test the theory of that urban myth that castle places, monastic places, they've all got tunnels and hidden entrances. And I thought, well, let's try, let's test it. And underneath the wheat sheaf, lo and behold, we found the origins of the old 14th century bridge that crossed the medieval ditch. And of course, Frog Lane is a reference to watery place. You know, so, I mean, even Ludlow, place names are important to us archaeologists. I mean, Ludlow itself refers to a mound on the hill. This is very in general terms, overlooking the loud water, the noisy river. And that St. Lawrence's Church is quite key, actually, because when they built that, the church in 1199, they had a mound there, which I think and other academics think is probably Bronze Age. It certainly links to the racetrack. In the medieval period, they didn't know what prehistory was. They had no idea. They even went 1846 when they did the railway, you know, and they're cutting through the barrows. They didn't understand what it was. You had the antiquarians, treasure hunters looking for treasure. That must be frustrating for, for you, though, looking at it today, thinking how much has been destroyed by all those people just ploughing through things and taking away bits and pieces. Yeah, it does. And I think from the work that I do, from the work in the castle to the projects to all my professional work, watching briefs, people's house extensions, things like this, one of the things you, you realise is in the last 15, 20 years, we've been more on it as a nation. We've been more on it in looking after our heritage, our archaeology, because like my students, you know, the thing with doing an excavation, it's the last resort. We don't just go in and excavate to find out what's there. There's a lot of background work that goes into it and you have to 
not, not everyone can just dig. You've got to be qualified and the rest of it. So it tells us a lot. But once it's removed, you can't put it back. It's gone. And that's why we incessantly record, 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 record. And we excavate in order to understand how the ground's made up. And on that point, let me tell you, round, this is really overlooked. Back of the castle, you walk round on the Duchess Walk. You walk round and it's like three tiers. And there's wonderful views. And I believe that pathway was put in in 1736, right? I often say to the kids when they're up in the tower, we look out and I say, imagine for nearly a thousand years of chucking your rubbish out. Because what you've got around the back of the castle is a giant midden. What I mean by that, folks, is it's a rubbish heap. So ever since when the castle was first built, it was built on a geological outcrop because it's defensive. There was a reason for it. And over time, that material was built up. And in the winter months, I go around and do a surface finds collection and we record it. And the data that's coming out there is unbelievable. In fact, if you've got a JCB and just dug a massive trench through a wedge through all of it, you'd get stratified remains. What I mean by that is that they're one layer on top of another and it's not been disturbed. You go towards the top and you see the old 1960s bottle tops. And you can imagine, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 50s, 40s, you know, most of the population of what we know as Ludlow say was probably conceived around there in the summer months. I was walking around there, around Mortimer's Walk, around the back of the castle. I was walking around there last week. So I was effectively walking on hundreds of years of rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all archaeology. I'm sure down at the bottom, you've probably got, you know, from when your Normans are eating their bits of chicken, throwing it or whatever they ate. I don't know what they had. And that's probably down at the bottom. You had a, one or two bodies down there, I reckon. Pottery, all kinds. But I remember somebody saying to me, why is the soil black here? And I said, because it's organic. I said, when you walk around a castle and you consider all of the fireplaces, can you imagine the industry of normal, genuine people that had to keep that castle going. It was a massive system. And the, only the tiny upper echelons, we hear of this, but they weren't visible. It was your everyday people. And the reason why that soil's black, I said, well, think about all the ash. Where does it go? And I guess that would mean that the castle was probably on much more of a sheer kind of cliff when it was built. If, if all of that ramp of stuff built up against it, you know, if you walk around the back of Mortimer's Walk now, around the back of the castle, it looks hugely imposing to look up on those walls, but it must have been almost twice as imposing originally before all of that accumulation of rubbish was there. It's very hard to imagine what it was like back then. It is, it really is. It's hard in a sense of our own prejudice, our own way of seeing things, and the layout, like you were saying before at the town, would have been much different. It would have been smaller, less populated, you probably would have seen curly, unfurling smoke rising in the distance, the noises and the smells. and the, See, that, that's something that archaeology as well it, it can't pick up. It's very difficult to do that. That whole century sort of phenomenological sort of approach to it sometimes gets overlooked and it, it would have been relevant. So some of the tanning areas would have stank to high heaven.
catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what projects have you got going on in Ludlow at the moment? What have you got planned? What would you like to find out? You know, where would you really like to dig? The great exciting thing about it is, is that because there's very little work that's been done in the past, there's a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, I'm basing my career. I've lived here. I've been here since the early 90s. I love the town. And really one of the aims, although I sort of specialise in looking at the pottery, one of the aims is really for me to understand the origins of the town, because that's why I'm trying to look at the medieval pottery. So the projects currently what I've, I've got underway is mainly the test pit survey. And what I'm doing is looking in the historic core of the town, in people's back gardens. I've been doing this for the last two years. And we uh, it's a very wonderful methodology that's very unobtrusive. So we can get to look, we go down a, a metre square, all of the finds are recorded, the archaeology, the archaeological deposits are recorded. That's the levels that are undisturbed. 
we also get to find out where the geology is because I mean you know it's got a wonderful unique makeup geologically this town as well and that's very reflective actually in the town wall you can see where it's made up one side and then on the other side so I've got a test pit survey going on and are people generally quite cooperative with that are they happy for you to go and dig up their back garden I guess people are probably interested they love it they love it honestly I every work that I do in every season I put on a series of lectures for the town and they can't get enough of it and the local people I mean I post up here on a local Facebook group memories I think it is and there's a thing that people miss a trick on talking to older generations because they do remember stuff you know I had a guy he, he said yeah yeah in the 60s I used to muck about with the vicar's daughter we used to go up and we used to, we found these old culverts and tunnels and entrances and then you know that links on to the subterranean survey that's ongoing as well so I'm looking underneath the town surveying the cellars to understand the townscape underneath because what you don't see we don't tend to think exists in our world the castle is really interesting because it's always under a constant state of repair. So there's a lot of work in recording that as well. And another interesting project that I started about two years ago was a apopatraic witch marking project where I came across, and this is through the subterranean, because I started invariably looking, you know, up chimneys and, and then I started finding these Georgian boots single boots stuffed up the chimneys and then I started finding these markings burn marks virgin mary marks daisy wheels it's weird and I thought this is really interesting what's going on here so I set about in the winter months to uh, invariably they're up in loft spaces or above entrances you know of medieval buildings and uh, I've been setting out a project to record that with some of my students so it's all ongoing, but truly fascinating, you know, it really is. And what were witch marks? What were they for? Why would we find those in buildings? Well, it's an old superstition, I believe, from what I've found so far. And there is other work across the country that's been done on it as well, which is good. It's a little bit like the graffiti work that's being done in Norfolk that started off there. With a really, you know, wonderful insight into how we can capture archaeology in its unusual forms. But they were used really for country folk, for your average everyday person that had their old, I suppose, pagan beliefs still embedded in the way they were living. You know, at that time in the medieval period, we were really into the cycles of the seasons. We had to be to survive. You know, most tradesmen, whatever they were doing, everyone in the summer months had to stop whatever they were doing, get out in the fields and bring the harvests in. And then you see the emergence of the medieval fairs, the Mayfair that was here. And all the youngsters would come to town and do what youngsters do like they do when they go around the fair today. So were the witch marks, are they about warding off evil, that kind of thing? Because obviously witchcraft is a significant belief in the Middle Ages, isn't it? People genuinely believe that, that witchcraft was real and dangerous and a threat. Yeah, well, it's something that's very close to my heart. My dad was an anthropologist in the 60s, sort of 50s, 60s. He, he did a lot of work. And there's a lot of stuff in the Boscastle Witchcraft Museum on old folklore. And it's something that truly fascinates me. But yeah, it was all to do with superstition and fear, really. You get these scorch marks. Now, you normally find them at the top of barn buildings or hidden away. And of course, today, what people do is convert barns and they put in floors and levels. So when you go up, you start seeing these deep scorch marks. 
And I think they were put there as a superstition for the house not to be struck by lightning. It's sort of like a synthesis of religion, folklore, really governed by fear in a way. So what, in your years um, digging around Ludlow, what's your favourite find so far? What's the best thing you've ever pulled out the ground? I love it all, but I suppose very simple. To me, I found a lovely 13th century, almost whole, but it was a jug spout. Now, I just loved it for what it represented, the way it was made, the finger marks that were still in it, the glazing that they experimented on with it, you can see where it's dripped. That was one of my favourite finds. The other favourite find has got to be the seal matrix as well, a little tiny thing that I'm having researched, because that's the other thing with archaeology is, is that the, the time periods and the finds are so variable that you can't be an expert in it all. And there are other experts in different fields. Clay pipes, for example. I love clay. I love them. You get the stamp marks. And the ones in Ludlow with the heart-shaped mark, when it's got a W on it, was a chap, I think it was William Underwood, who was making them in 1620. Now, it's post-medieval, but I, it's, it's fantastic. And I think I had a moment, a student, I mean, I, you know, I smoke roll-ups and, and the rest of it, and my student's there with one of these, what do they call them, the electronic things, and he says to me, how do you smoke that without a filter? And I said, well, it's easy. Just put it in your mouth and you suck it. And I looked at him and thought, do you know what? My God, there's a moment in the future. They're going to be digging up fake machine parts and mods and putting them in museums. <laughs> and what the hell were we doing? You know what I mean? I mean, we know better now. But back then in that sort of post-medieval period, it's very fashionable, you know. So the seal matrix, jug spouts. I found some lovely shirts of medieval pottery tiles monastic floor tiles i found a lovely one down mill street i mean again it's about 15th century but it was beautiful it had this inlay tudor rose oh and then also other floor tiles a little bit earlier 13th 14th century where you see them being worn down by the people constantly stepping on them you know they're amazing there's that real tangible link to what was, go, you know, these are things, but they were used for stuff. So the pottery and the jugs were used every day and the floor tiles were walked on by people. That's right. And of course, you can imagine them making it and imagine that whoever was pouring it and then it slipped and it broke. And there's probably a story behind that. And it broke and she swept it up, chucked it out. <laughs> because, you know, what do you do? What do you do? But it, that, it's just that insight into everyday life. Medieval tokens farmer's tokens where they used to exchange sort of like for goods at the end of you know the, working in the fields in the seasons that gives an indication of people and their circumstances so would that have been a, a form of bartering rather than using money exchanging a token to be retrieved later on for other services or goods yeah that's it that's totally it it would have it would have kept the economy local as well before really people started traveling much further afield but yeah, and a way of control as well, form of control. So I guess as a last question then, if you were given absolute free reign, where would you love to sink a trench in Ludlow? I would love to get down in the castle well, right? And I think you know why. It's because it would be completely intact, stratified, deposits, layered. Because it's got a wall around it, it hasn't been interfered either side. And just what that could tell us with the fine standard. You can imagine getting to the, you know, because I watch people throw coins down there now. 
And where I take people around of the summer months and I talk about the archaeology, I mean, I don't shut up. They love it, though. They love it. And we've got a little basis now of a museum in there. So I started to show all the finds to the kids and the adults. And they loved it. And they learn. You never stop learning. I don't stop learning. And, you know, you look down that well and you think you can see all the coins, yeah, that people throw today. So you've got that. You go underneath that. If you were down there, you get pre-decimalization. Underneath that, you get the Georgian or Victorian uh, Georgian. And go underneath that, you get the sort of like Tudor period, then you get to the medieval period, then you get all kinds of, but you know, you don't know what kind of goodies are down there and it's been left alone and no one's touched it and it's just waiting to be discovered. There might be charms down there. There could be all kinds of things because we've always done that, thrown things, offering, offering, offering. <laughs> so am I right in thinking that bit round the well, uh, which is kind of at the back of the keep, isn't it? If you go in there, it seems like the ground is really, really high, but that's just what's built up over the period. Because if you try and get into the, one of the back doors of the tower, it, it feels like it's really low, like it's about four foot tall, isn't it? But that's because the ground level's higher than it was. That's right. That's totally right. Yeah. Similar principle you see in churches. You know, I do a lot of work in churches and quite often the church is sunk or the earlier churches, they're sunk and the ground's been made up. Again, the same principle as um, the back of the castle around the other side where the giant midden is really. All that's been made up and it would have been bare rock. So, yeah, the levels are really they can trick you you know all is not what it seems <laughs> yeah we tend to think people built all the door frames really low in those days don't we but it's not necessarily that when sometimes the ground level has changed the other area which i'm tackling this year i just started last year is the dinham area which is near the castle and that will be able to tell me quite a lot by the geology levels the finds that are there hopefully any archaeological deposits that have been untouched stratified remains all of this all of that would tell me a great deal and it's pretty much the earlier part of the town i know when i've excavated down out towards corve street the layers are so deep of victorian disturbance because of a hell of a lot of building works i mean the they built the victorian chapel down there you know st lawrence's press those buildings either side on one side of the road they go down about three meters and it's all just Victorian stuff, you know. And you can always tell by the soils, the finds that come out, you know, if there's a bottom of a trench and you get a Victorian shirt, it's been disturbed. It kind of got you can't put your hand inside and underneath. So Dinham area is exciting. Any time we open up the castle, that's exciting to me as well. When things are getting back to a little bit more normality and Ludlow Castle's open, when can people come and see you and hear about these fascinating things around the castle? The castle is looking to open again over this year. Last year, they successfully managed to do this, put things in place. So that should be back to normal. Usually, we normally kick off in there around Easter time, but it's going to be a bit later this year. I will be in there from May onwards for the rest of the year. You can find me in there on a weekend, usually on a Saturday. I love taking the tourists around. I'm quite unusual like that. Some of my peers don't like to engage. I love engaging with the public. I love it. it. Gets me thinking. I'm always doing lots of work around the town. People, if you've got any questions, you can always contact me on my email, leon at bracelin.co.uk. Now looking to put together, or we've just done the basis of it now, we'll be launching that, a YouTube channel, so people can see what I'm doing 
And I've been experimenting late last year with two minute clips. So we're putting that on a channel because people love it. They want to see. And the thing is, if you have a website, but it takes me forever to type it up and that ain't going to happen. I do too many reports because everything you dig, you've got to write it up. That's another thing, guys, as well. You know, there's, you know, one day's digging, a week writing it up. <laughs> <laughs> one day of fun and a week of torture afterwards. So I'm always about, and, 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 you know, in the summer months, I put on sort of regular talks. How that's going to go this year, I don't know. I've been doing a lot of Zoom. And if we want to come and get a tour of the castle, do we have to book or anything like that? Or are you just there at weekends and generally available? You can drop me a line on my email and I do take private tours around. So people, you know, I'm there for hire for private tours for schools, universities, families, all kinds. So I'm there generally for the public over the summer months, but I do get booked out in weekdays, other days that suits you. And I'm now bringing a town tour where I'm starting to put together this year a unique archaeological town tour. So I want to take people around the town as well so they can see the archaeology in relation to the castle. They both go together. Thank you very much, Leon. I mean, that was a fascinating tour through the centuries with Ludlow and it'll certainly, I think, add to my future visits to Ludlow where I, I'm frequently to be found wandering around. If you found this episode interesting and you'd like to hear more from Gone Medieval, then subscribe wherever you get your podcast from and tell all your friends and family that you've gone medieval. While I've got you, I uh, caught an episode of Dan Snow's History Hit the other day on Vikings in America, which kind of ties in with the archaeology here, looking at the earliest evidence of Vikings making it across the sea to the Americas. And it's well worth a listen if you want to learn a bit more about those Viking settlements. Anyway, I've been Matt Lewis, and we've just gone medieval with History Hits. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80 less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.